you have with you a Bible, please open it now to the book of Romans. And if you're doing that on your phone or iPad, I know whether or not you're looking at scripture. Just let me say that. I know that. We have cameras all over the place. No. Some people don't like humor from the pulpit. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was probably the one who uh, did it the most and once he was confronted by a lady coming out after he preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and she said to him Mr. Spurgeon I don't like your humor he said I don't think there's anything funny about worshiping the Lord and I don't think you should do it and he said ma'am you would be so proud of me if you knew how much I held back <laughs> but today we're dealing with some very serious uh, matters in the scripture. The scholar Richard Longnecker who just finished and I just purchased a, a commentary on Romans that is just amazing and outstanding. He said this is probably one of the most underestimated passages in all of scripture for the power of what it has to say. So with that said let's begin reading in Romans chapter 2 we will read verses 17 to 29. Hear now the word of the Lord. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you rob temples? You who boast, in the law dishonor God by breaking the law for as it is written the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to come under the preaching of your word. And I pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength 
and our Redeemer. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we begin looking at this particular section of Scripture, Paul is continuing the argument that he began in chapter 2. And so he has this person, it's a diatribe, literary method, full of rhetorical questions. That's what he's asking here and doing here throughout this text. A rhetorical question is a question asked in order to create a dramatic effect or to make a point rather than to receive any kind of answer. And so Paul sort of poses these dramatic questions to sort of penetrate the shield of the moralist. And so Romans 2.17 reminds us of who Paul is talking to through this entire chapter. He is talking to, and I'll just put it in today's terminology, the religious Bible-believing Jew who has read the end of chapter 1 and thought to himself, at least I'm not like those pagan people in chapter 1. So the word if in verse 17 is incendiary. Imagine a good Jew reading the verse, if I am a Jew, how can you possibly say, Paul, if I am a Jew? We feel the force of the verse simply by inserting Christian for Jew. Paul turns to church members, professing Christians, and says, don't assume everything is fine and okay with you if you simply call yourself a Christian. You may bear the name, but do you bear the reality the name represents? And so in the rest of chapter 2, Paul describes the person he is speaking to as morally decent, someone in verses 17 to 24 who takes the law very seriously and is religiously active, being circumcised. So the two sections of the scripture of this passage 17 to 24 deals with Torah or the law and verses 25 to 29 deals specifically with circumcision and Paul is going to discuss both of those issues to this particular audience. First Paul lists six things that the Jews were proud of when it came to how they lived and that was their moral goodness. He lists six things that they are proud of. He says, you call yourself a Jew. They were proud of their nationality, and they were quite pleased to be Jews. You rely on the law, that is, pride in having and knowing the law of God, and had revealed to their ancestor Moses at Mount Sinai. Number three, you brag about your relationship to God. God has chosen Israel to be his people. Number four, you know his will and approve of that which is superior. And you were able to make correct ethical decisions. They were able to see the wrong choices others were making. Following the detailed rules and regulations of the law of God gave them a sense of being pleasing to God, particularly as they compared themselves to others. Number five, you are instructed by the law. They did not only have the law, they had mastered it. They could quote it. They could cross-reference it. They could go into deep details of it. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind. They knew that they could see. 
and that others couldn't because they were lost and swamped in idolatry. And so they spread the knowledge of the law. Paul, in this passage, don't misunderstand, is not saying that there's anything wrong with being a Jew, with having and knowing and internalizing God's law with using his commands to make ethical decisions or with seeking to share his ways with others. The problem is that you rely and you brag. You rely and you brag. Those two words are explosive. It is not the Jewishness or the having of the law, far less the keeping of it, that is wrong, it is your attitude toward your nationality and toward your morality. I'm going to make a probably statement that needs to be qualified in some ways, but not really. Christianity is not morality. Christianity is not morality. Now, it might issue in moral changes in our lives. But that's not what Christianity is. That's what moralism is. The great church father, Tertullian, who was from Carthage, North Africa, says this. He says, the gospel is always crucified between two thieves that try to rob the gospel of its power. He said, on the one hand, as Christ was crucified between two thieves, on the one hand, there are those who are lawless and antinomian and immoral and those who are relativist. On the other hand, there are those who are moralist. There are those who are legalist. There are those who misuse the law of God as a means by which they establish a relationship with God. And so what we see here is Paul's indictment of moralism because it is so dangerous. It is the most prevalent heresy in the world today of any religion that you can put God in debt to you by your obedience and he owes you a good life. He owes you good things because your obedience obligates him. And so let's keep going. They are relying on the law. They are making what is moral good things into a system of salvation. The content of the law is fine, but using the law as a way to earn eternal life leads only to death. There's not much difference between the word morality and the word moralism, but there's an eternal world of difference between making a good thing, morality, into your God, moralism. Moralism is extremely common. It has always been. It is the biggest religion in the world today. It is the religion of people who compare themselves with others, who notice that they are a lot more decent than other people, and conclude that if there is a God, he certainly must accept me because it basically at heart, I'm a decent, good person. That's the language of the moralist. How do we know we have lapsed into Christian moralism as the source of our righteousness? Whenever we brag about something we have done, when we rely on our own action, profession, or identity, we are living as functional moralists. 
it is instructive to insert the word Christian for Jew and paraphrase verses 17 through 20 this way. You call yourself a born-again Christian, and you are sure that you are right with God because you signed a commitment card or you walked an, down an aisle or you prayed a prayer and you really cried that night over your sin and you remember that you had strong feelings for God so you must have been converted that night. And hey, since you have memorized dozens of scripture verses and you know the right answers to a large array of questions and you've led other people to make a commitment to Christ in Bible study that you lead and you want to get deep into the Bible, that's why you're reading Romans. But all of that doesn't mean a thing. Paul later says in the book of Galatians, for neither circumcision, that would be more morality, nor uncircumcision, that's immorality, counts or has any value. The only thing that has value or counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith, looking outside of yourself, laying hold of Christ, repenting of your sins, trusting in him and him alone, produces something in you that all the commandments of the law and all the morality in the world cannot produce in you, and that is love for God and love for other people. Wow. Wow. Now, I know this cuts across the grain of the way some people think, but let's think about it together this morning. Paul has set his readers up with two fastballs, and now he throws them a curveball. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? The great 20th century British preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, shows how this applies to us as professing Christians. As you read the Bible day by day, do you apply? Um, the truth to yourself. Do you apply it first to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves as you need to say to yourself, this is me. What it's saying here is about me. I remember when I was young and reading the Bible and just really getting into it, I just loved it when Jesus went off on the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And I kept saying to myself, yeah, get them. I don't like those people either. <laughs> and then one day the Holy Spirit said, that's you. You're looking at your own heart. You're looking at your own picture. You see, my preaching will never help anyone if I don't first apply what I'm preaching to myself. Otherwise, I'm just a proud blowhard, and there are plenty of those. So he goes on to say, uh, as you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? Allow scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be incredibly dangerous. There's a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. Have you ever heard a sermon and said, either out loud or in your heart, I wish my brother was here. I wish my sister was here. I wish my mother was here. I wish my daughter was here so they could hear this message. What about you? 
What about you? We're all professionals. We have a PhD in hearing sermons for someone else. And that's exactly what's going on as Paul does this. The further we go in the Christian life, the more involved we are in our church's life, the more we need to heed these words. Are we preaching to ourselves before we preach to others? Are we practicing ourselves what we call others to practice? Paul is three ways in which self-confident moral Jews he is speaking to are not practicing what they teach. They steal. They commit adultery. They hate idolatry and yet rob temples. Now, moralism fails because we are all inconsistent in our behavior. We have the law, but no one can keep it. We break it in two ways. First, there's an occasional outright hypocrisy. This can be spectacular, such as a pastor having an affair, or an elder who's committing fraud at work, or every day stealing extra time in our lunch break, or forgetting to include certain items on a particular tax form. Second, there are continual sins of the heart and motives. This is what Paul means in the third charge. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, I have read 25 sources preparing for this this week. Nobody knows what this means. Nobody's ready to sit down and say, this is absolutely what it means. There are more positions than you can think of on what this means. But fundamentally, it means that somewhere it's possible, let me, let me use the word possible. Um, so, it is possible that some of the Jews, no not worshiping idols themselves, would take them from temples and sell them to other people. That would be a lot like writing an article for a pornographic magazine that you would never look at yourself or want your children to see. But there's no evidence that self-professing religious law-keeping Jews actually did this. So a more likely explanation is that the term robbing temples is figurative, not literal. Paul is taking a radical approach to the Ten Commandments, just as Jesus did in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 48. There, Jesus extends the definition of adultery from purely external, I didn't sleep with anyone who wasn't my spouse today, that's the Eighth Commandment to include heart motives. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Paul is using the same principle here. True religion is about heart motives as much as or for more than about actions of the body. He is saying idol worshiping is more than a physical act. You reject bowing to a statue, but you actually worship the same idol that is under the surface of the statue. This is what Ezekiel calls idols of the heart. And he says, so under the surface of the statue, if you let anything become your raison d'etre, your meaning in life, power, comfort, approval, possessions, pleasure, control, you are violating the commandment against idolatry just as much as somebody who bows before statues and worships that you abhor. 
If you treat religion as your savior, then you are violating the command too. You have taken a statue from a pagan temple. You have renamed it morality and you have worshipped it. In other words, it's quite possible to use religiosity to veil our heart idols of career, sex, reputation, and so on to make religiosity itself our idol. That's the problem with the moralist. The moralist is blind to it. The moralist never sees it. By the way, what God requires of us in keeping the law is personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. Nobody does that, by the way. Even after you become a believer, you don't do that, by the way. Nobody can do it. And so, this is what Paul is saying. He's diagnosing here the empty faith of his hearers. How can we tell if our faith is simply dead and under God's judgment? These verses push us to some potentially uncomfortable self-diagnosis. There are two signs that Paul gives in this text. There is the theoretical only stance toward the Word of God. The moralist or dead orthodox Christian loves the concept of truth but are never changed by them. They often see how a sermon or a Bible text ought to convict others, but they seldom ever let it convict them. A real Christian finds the Bible living and active, and when they hear it read and when they hear it preached, it is amazing how it brings conviction and comfort, how it thrills us and disturbs us, how it melts us and slams us down, and how it lifts us up. Paul prompts us to ask the question, which am I? Do I teach myself or do I just instruct others? And then the second devastating thing is there is a moral superiority, an inbuilt braggadocio, if you are relying on your own spiritual achievements, you have to look down on those who have failed in the same area. You will be at best cold and at worst condemning toward those who are struggling rather than speaking words of encouragement to strugglers, helping to lift them up. Your words of gossip that you speak about them to others, you show yourself in a comparatively good light. A sign of this condition is that people who don't want to share their problems with you and you are very defensive if others point out your problems to you. Now, you cannot escape that. That just happens. It just happens. And so the moralist's biggest problem is himself. You see, any deviation away from the gospel is self-centered. And the moralist is religiously self-centered. He literally believes and she literally believes that I'm better than you. I am superior to you. And that's not Christianity. Not at all. I remember the first time I learned the doctrines of grace. Had all the petals on my tulip. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. Uh, perseverance and preservation of the saints. I was a young cage stage Calvinist. And then one day it dawned upon me that I was pretty obnoxious and that I was pretty much looking down on everybody 
who didn't understand that or see it that way, thinking God loved me more. He liked being around me more than them because I knew my stuff. You see, what's supposed to be my righteousness is the righteousness Jesus lived in my place. He kept the covenant of works on my behalf. He lived and fulfilled the law in every way. And so the righteousness I have is imputed to me, not imparted in me, but imputed to me, rendered to my account. When God looks at me, he sees Christ's righteousness. And so what I had done subtly was turn Reformed theology into my functional righteousness. I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more theologically astute than you. And that is inimical to grace, is it not? You know, we see a person who's a, a very, what I call technicolor sinner, who's done some heinous and horrible and hideous things. And we see them converted and we say to ourselves, it's a miracle, don't we? It's a miracle any one of you, as well as myself, are saved. That's an utter miracle. If you know how lost you were, you know how deceived you were, you know how blinded you were in sin, you understand how you relied on whatever moral goodness you had. Your damnable good works were standing between you and repenting of coming to Christ. But if that ever happens for you, that is a miracle. God did it. And what should it do to us? Humble us in the dust. Humble us. Break us down. Now, we're only half through with the sermon, so you better listen fast. Now, moralism causes blasphemy. The fatal weakness of moralism is that it cannot protect or prevent the heart from sinning. All it can do is seek to hide the sin. Religiosity has no answer to and power to remove selfishness, lust, envy, anger, and pride. The crushing result of Christian moralism is that it dishonors God. When religious people boast about their law keeping while breaking the law, usually the only person who cannot see what they are doing is the one doing it. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is a convicting principle. A life of religious legalism is always distasteful in those outside the faith. I mean, not even a mother likes a legalist. You know, B.B. King wrote a song. I love blues music. And uh, he wrote a song years ago called, Nobody Loves Me But My Mother, and She Could Be Jiving Too. A mother doesn't even love a legalistic son. Not for his legalism. Nobody likes that. I don't like to be around him. You don't like to be around him. Worse than that, I hate to be caught being one. And I have to admit, I have to have regular checkups for that. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, a moralist will be smug uh, if they're good people, oversensitive if their goodness is their righteousness, so must not be understood, undermined 
judgmental, they need to find others worse than them in order to be good, and anxious, have they done enough? Worse, irreligious people look at and dislike the God who moralists claim to represent. Paul is thus arguing to the Jews, you were called to be a light to the nations. You were called to be a light to the world. You think of yourselves as bringing light to those who are in darkness, and yet the world finds your religion totally unattractive. Don't you see, therefore, that you must have misunderstood it? We need to pose ourselves the same challenge. Is our church community and are we individuals attractive to those who are broken and lost and dead in sin? Are we winsome in our approach to Christianity? Or when they walk in the door, can they feel it? Do they sense it? Do they know it that we immediately think we're superior and better than them? Everybody can smell that. Everybody can smell that immediately. They know it. I know it as soon as I run into it. Sadly, I know it when I do it myself. But the real reality is here, this is, this is one thing after being what I am now for 35 years. Actually, I was a minister for 45, but 35, the right kind of minister. Okay. What I have discovered after all that time is there is something in the fallen human heart that longs for validation. I want to be recognized as somebody set apart. I want an identity that counts and that matters. And you can use this to do that in the worst kind of ways. Now, you cut me, I bleed. I'm reformed, top of my head to the sole of my feet. Nuances may be different than yours. But in the heart, I subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms. And so that's my doctrinal basis. But that's not my righteousness. It's not what validates me. It's not what makes me okay. The righteousness of Christ credited to me is what makes me okay. That alone. Nothing else. That alone. Do you really believe in justification, I guess, is the question I'm asking. In our humility, it's our humility in hard situations, grace under pressure and so on, obvious for others to see. Are we living as advertisements for God or a keep clear sign? Only the gospel produces churches and people who command God to come to the world. Moralism can never do this. And moralism leads to a, a pathology within the church called dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy. A person who is theologically and doctrinally correct, but they're dead. What's the best kind of orthodoxy? Live orthodoxy, not dead orthodoxy. Let me distinguish that right quick, or we may have to have a part two here. In verse 25, Paul introduces circumcision into the argument. This was the great cultural marker or badge of God's covenant with his people. It was the ceremony by which a male Jew was brought into the covenant community, but circumcision had become part of Jewish pride. Uh, 
the basis for a, com a complacent assumption that their cultural identity bestowed righteousness. Their relationship with God had become based on pride, not humble joy. Still common today in two ways. First, many people identify with a religion on the basis of their nationality. Because they are, let's say, English, they become Anglicans. Uh, maybe they're Italian, they become Catholics. Or maybe they're Greek and they go Orthodox. And so it's part of the nationality of the person and they're proud of it. And you can tell them they are lost. If you tell them they are lost, unless there's something more than that, they feel you are insulting their country and their culture and they're offended. But it's quite possible to put your faith in church membership belonging to the visible people of God for your salvation. Again, it's revealing to insert other words from circumcision uh, and paraphrase Paul's words in verses 25 to 29. So what if you've been baptized? So what if you're a church member? The on, this only counts for anything if there's been a real dynamic change in your life, if your heart has been truly affected. Don't you know that you are not a Christian if you're only one externally? The real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things. No. A Christian is someone who is a Christian inside. What matters is inner baptism, a heart membership of God's people. And this is a supernatural work, not a human one. It's possible to trust Christianity rather than Christ. Wow. And this can happen in conservative evangelical churches. Paul is showing us a condition called dead orthodoxy, where the basic doctrines of the Bible are accurately subscribed to, but do not make any internal difference in the person. There's an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but no internal revolution. The form of Christianity is outside out. It is never penetrates our dead orthodoxy is that it never penetrates the heart rather than the true gospel faith which is an inside out everything we do flows from who we are internally dead orthodoxy makes the church into a religious cushion for people who think they're Christians but in fact are radically and subconsciously insecure about their acceptance before God. So every Sunday, people gather to be reassured that they are all right. Various churches offer this reassurance in different ways. We all get into a holy huddle and pat each other on the back about how right we are. For heaven's sakes, that's not the church. Let me name a few of them. I'll probably skip yours. Legalistic churches <laughs> produce detailed codes of conduct. I call them Christian Talmuds. And details of doctrine. I have been every one of these things, so don't think I'm lording it over anything. Members need to continually hear that they are more holy and accurate and that the liberals are wrong and they functionally rely on their theological correctness. Sound doctrine equals righteousness. Power churches put a great deal of emphasis on make miracles and the spectacular works of God. Members need continually to have the powerful and emotional experiences and see dramatic occurrences. That's why they have church so much. <laughs> you ever been a part of a charismatic or Pentecostal church? 
friend of mine asked me why I was a Presbyterian. I said, because we get it all done on Sunday morning. We don't have to come back. <laughs> now, these power encounters only sort of, uh, it's like eating the first potato chip. You can't stop. And you just keep going and you've got to be titillated. You've got to be uh, uh, transcending every moment to a higher moment to a higher moment. And then you go home and you're depressed. And you go back on Monday night. And then you go back on Wednesday night. And then you go back on Friday night. Then you go back three times on Sunday to fill the tank. They rely on their feelings and dramatic answers to prayer and great emotion equals righteousness. Um, I had, when I first planted this church here in 1988, we used to have a group of people who would enter the service at 20 after 11. They'd been to their charismatic or Pentecostal churches and worshiped, but they came to our church to hear the Bible preached because they thought the Bible was preached here and it wasn't preached so well over there. But they were still addicted to the worship. And uh, I preached to them and I preached to them, never saw much happen. And then I came uh, back for a visit one time and I saw all of them had become members of Spring Meadows as they began to hear the Word of God preached over time and they began to see the truth and it helped them a great deal. Uh, one of my friends, well, I won't say that. Let's move on. Sacerdotal churches, these are uh, sort of those that put a great emphasis on rituals and tradition. Guilt-ridden people are anesthetized by the beauty of the music, the architecture, the grandeur, and mystery of the ceremony. Following liturgy equals righteousness. Of course, theological accuracy moral conscientiousness, praying faith, being powerfully affected by gospel truths and beautiful worship are all very good things. But these elements are so easily and so regularly used as a form of dead works, Hebrews speaks of, replacing for reliance on the righteousness revealed by God in Christ and received by us in Christ. Richard Lovelace said this, much that we have interpreted as a defect in sanctification, that is a lack of Christian maturity and stability, in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification, the basis on which we are acceptable to God. Sanctification has, as one of its elements, returning to your justification. Okay? You're not done with it once it's declared, but you return to it. You return to it. And so the importance of the principle cannot be overemphasized, and it causes self-reflection. Along with the theoretical only approach to God's Word and a sense often unconscious of moral superiority, a hallmark of dead orthodoxy is the total lack of an inner life. But what matters is not bearing the sign, be it circumcision, baptism, church membership card, and so on, but having the reality which the sign signifies. In effect, Paul says in verses 25 to 27, 
that it's better to be an unbaptized believer, as it were, than a baptized non-believer, and that both are possible. What matters isn't being a Jew outwardly, circumcised physically, but a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. This is a vivid image. A circumcised heart is one that's spiritually melted and softened. It is a means to have an active prayer life, not out of a sense of obligation due to duty, but duty becomes delight once you see the righteousness of Christ fulfilled for you. But out of love, because there's a sense of the presence and nearness and goodness of God. That's something that the moralistic person never has. They may get feelings when they are caught up in the liturgy or excitement or preaching of a corporate service, but they're radically unsure that God loves them. So from Sunday evening through to the next Sunday morning, a sense of deadness, emptiness, depression, and insecurity prevail. But in closing, Christians have been circumcised. None of us want to discover on the last day that we were in truth moralist, deadly orthodox in our theology and worship, but dead spiritually. But the circumcision, the change, the belonging that we need is of the heart, not of the written code, Paul tells us here. And it's done by the Spirit, not by men. This is something that cannot be done externally and that I can do myself. What is the hope? Is there any hope? Where is it? Here it is. It is what circumcision was a sign of. It's worth asking, why circumcision? When God gave Abraham an outward sign of an inward reality of his personal, intimate relationship with his creator, why did he say, you shall be circumcised? What is the symbolism of circumcision? It was a visual sign of the penalty for breaking covenant. In ancient times, you didn't just sign your name and shake a hand to bind a deal. You acted out the curse that you would accept if you broke covenant. So a man picks up some sand or dust and drops it on his head to say, if I break the promises I have made on this day, may I become as this dust. If I break the promises I have had on this day, may I become as dust. Or he may cut an animal in half, or several animals in half, and walk between the pieces to say, if I disobey the covenant, may I die as these animals have. By the way, that is what God did in his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, which is probably, R.C. Sproul said that's his favorite passage in the whole Bible. For good reason. Circumcision, don't think about this too long, is cutting off a very intense, personal, tender way. So what God was saying to Abraham was, if you want to be in relationship with me, you need to be circumcised as a sign to you. And everyone, if you break covenant with me, you will be cut off completely. Cut off from others, cut off uh, from life, cut off from me, you will you really will be cut off. That is circumcised. But no one does keep the covenant. No one. Paul has devoted Romans 2 to making this clear. So how can God have any people at all? How can anyone ever be right with him? 
because the cutting off of what circumcision was a sign has already happened. Talking about the cross to the Colossian Gentile Christian believers who had not been physically circumcised, Paul says, in him, that is Jesus, you were also circumcised not by the hands of man, but with the circumcision done by Christ. In fact, in Christ, on the cross, in his death, Jesus was cut off. He was forsaken by his father. He was cut off from him. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was truly circumcised. He was bearing the curse of covenant breaking. He was suffering the curse that lawbreakers, whether religious or irreligious, deserve. In him we were circumcised. When the Spirit really works in someone, he gives them the Son's circumcision. Neither our religious performance nor our lack of religious performance matters. Through the Spirit applying the work of the Son to us, the Father sees us as objects of praise and never condemnation. We don't need to praise ourselves or to live for the praise of others. Our Father in heaven sees us as beautiful. <laughs> Does that sound too good to be true? That's the good news. That's the gospel. What I deserved, God treated him as I deserved, and he treats me as Jesus deserves. What a glorious gospel. What great news. How liberating and just spiritually fun to think about that for a long time. And so in conclusion, the written code leaves us facing the covenant curse, never deserving of its blessings. We need another to take our cut-offness, and only God can do this for us in the finished work of his Son and the internal work of his Spirit, and he has done it, where we can become lively orthodox. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the passage before us. I hope that uh, I have seen as well as we have seen the failure of moralism, the failure of being a moralist, and the failure of religion altogether. And that we have learned during this time, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Now Father as those who have been redeemed by you those who have been circumcised through the atonement may we give as grateful people for what you have so graciously poured out upon us. In Jesus name Amen.